Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome back to the show, mate. Thanks, Owen. Good to see you. It's always a pleasure. We're recording remotely. Um, and you just did mention that you are potentially the first person on the show to record um, while having COVID. So how are you feeling? Completely fine. Yeah. How long ago did you get COVID? Uh, we tested positive last Wednesday, uh, but happened to get my booster about a week and a half before. So I think as the papers are saying, if you're boosted, you have a good chance of not having much of an impact. So have you been like bedridden or anything like that? No, there's some runny noses and the kids got a bit of a fever, but that was it. Hmm. Right. Okay. So in a bit of the gym every other day. So. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Not so sure you're supposed to say that, but. <laughs> yeah. So six days in um, means you, you have to quarantine for a few days, given the rules in Victoria, right? Yeah. Out tomorrow. So yep. I'll be getting up at 5am and going for a run. Going for a run. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, back to your rest, favorite restaurant, like Chin Chin or something in Melbourne. Definitely. Yeah. So um, most listeners, in fact, probably all listeners don't know this. Drew and I share an office and our office is conveniently located in the same building as Chin Chin Restaurant in Melbourne, uh, which is one of the one of the best restaurants in Melbourne. And we're very lucky to, to be in that spot. But it's also very dangerous um, because it's easy for us to order upstairs and say, yeah, we'll take that upstairs for lunch. So that gets quite expensive. But hey, I can give you my um, preferred order for the show notes if you want. <laughs> okay, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, we'll give some recommendations. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, in- inflation and kind of like how you're setting the portfolio up. Many of our listeners will know that you've been on the show quite a few times. We've done a lot together over the last few years. And um, I know that when we spoke last year, um, we reflected on COVID the year before and that kind of impact and how you switch between like convertibles. And we talked about how there was like arbitrage in some of those securities and it was a real win for the portfolio, you and Jamie, what you did there. Now, what we're going to talk about is basically reflecting on 2021 and how that kind of takes us into 2022, where we've seen during this Christmas break and in the lead up to Christmas 2021, that there's been a massive sell-off in certain names. So we've seen tech get absolutely thumped. At the same time, we've seen inflation spike, um, not just here in Australia, but in the US and, and throughout the world. And, you know, you'd only need to look at, say, like the inflation chart and then the stock market chart over the last, say, 20 years. And you would see that typically when inflation rises, there gets, there's some volatility in markets. And so people are starting to get a bit worried. And so we're hoping in this episode and in the two episodes that follow this, to bring some uh, kind of um, ease to the, to the crowd and, and soothe those fears and re- remind you to kind of have a game plan and stick to it uh, throughout this time because money tends to be made at these times. It may not feel like it when you're doing it, but it tends to be made at these times. So obviously, Drew, um, Certified Financial Planner and um, Director of Waddle Partners, um, one of the things that you do, in fact, this is what you do most days, is you think about your clients' portfolios and where they're invested. And so one of the things that is the easy question for me to ask is basically, how, do you, how are you dealing with the idea of inflation in client portfolios? Like, let's just start with like I how just you went, see I this. just went on a rant. I just wrote a 1,500-word article that I thought would be 400 <laughs> words about inflation. And it was kind of, if you read yeah, the right. paper on the weekend, I'm surprised. I was reading another article from Bloomberg just before and said the big selling pressure on Monday was actually retail traders and day traders 
selling out their positions and that that like overnight we mm. just saw five percent fall in the market become a 0.6 percent gain in a single session i mean if you were reading the papers mm. over the weekend you'd think the world's going to end you know this it mm. sounds like there's going to be seven interest rate hikes this year and like when have we ever seen yeah. Seven yeah interest rate hikes in a year and i kind of it's a long long answer i think but i'm my rant was about are interest rate hikes actually going to solve inflation this is this is the concept that you know inflate the biggest contributors to inflation are things like energy prices going up which everyone knows so it's been a lot more about underinvestment uh, and a lack of supply of energy food prices are going up which are related to energy and then supply chains are breaking down mainly because everyone's in isolation everyone's still catching the virus so I don't, I'm not saying that interest rates shouldn't be higher at some point in the next few years, but I'm suggesting that maybe we're over, over a little bit too concerned about seven mm. rate hikes in a very short period of time. Um, it's like when I, I log into my brokerage account, if I have my brokerage account on one side of my screen and then I have Twitter on the other side, you see it's hysterical on Twitter. People have yeah. kind of just have lost their mind. And then you look at the what's going on and sure, some companies are, you know, there's been valuation re-ratings and those types of things. And then we're seeing some poor results, but those results are coming from companies that tend to be poor quality anyway. And the valuations are stretched. And even still like the, the indices aren't really getting hammered like we would think in like a traditional market crash where things just free fall, like we saw in 2020. This seems more like a, we're making, I don't know, maybe a storm in a teacup from a broad market perspective, maybe on individual security level, we're seeing some big pull downs, but maybe those are justified. I think some, well, I heard someone speak recently and said, you know, new news is being priced in faster and more efficiently than it ever has. You know, DocuSign fell, what, 25, 30% in a session? Netflix yeah. fell 20. And they're basically just recalibrating to a new rate of growth immediately. That used to happen over a few months. And it happens on the upside too, I think, that, you know, we start in the search for growth, we're extrapolating growth rates that, you know, been brought on by the pandemic if they go back to trend which is what they're saying with netflix well you know the valuation just isn't there that that doesn't i think interest rates aren't the most important input to that as which is i think what you're saying as well they're yeah. they're an important consideration because they're an, uh, an alternative asset class and the cost of capital is driven by interest rates but it's been a lot more about individual companies i think there's something mm -hmm. like is it 40 percent of the nasdaq is down more than 50 percent from their 12 month highs last year. Yeah, right, I haven't seen that statistic, but that would, from what I've seen, I can imagine that being the case. And it's and it's spreading into the S&P 500 at the same time. So I think naturally, given the conditions, you're gonna see bond rates and interest rates higher over the next few years, but I'd be erring towards what the Fed and the um, RBA are saying which is that they're not going to hike rates before they need to. And they're kind of wary that if you go outside, there's no one in the city. <laughs> mm. there's, mm. there's no one really doing business because the concept of rate hikes is to cut consumption, but consumption isn't really the issue supply is. Mm. Uh, but all, I mean, that's basically the market. And if you read the paper over the weekend, everyone's pricing in inflation. And that's why uh, equity markets are falling. Um, I don't think mm. it's, it means you should be buying <laughs> straight away. I think you just need to start uh, kind of adjusting your approach and maybe um, cleaning up in some areas. Can I ask a question? You, in preparation for this discussion, you mentioned something, you said the supply constraints there. 
versus say the consumption side of the equation for inflation. Um, you mentioned in the show notes that the WA hasn't experienced inflation and you thought that was interesting. Yeah. And, what, and so, so why do you think that's the case? As in like, do you think it's more like the, the lockdowns, the isolation, that type of stuff? I don't think Australia has more generally, you know, we're at, I think we just went into the two to 3% yeah, range so far. We're seeing inflation in certain sectors, but we're seeing more shortages like this ad blue shortage that's sending, you know, I think there was an article yesterday on fuel prices are higher and, and food prices are higher. And they're not, you know, not because of supply demand. They're because you can't get people to pick fruit and you can't get people to put it on the shelves. It's, uh, and then, yeah, the cost of petrol is driven by decisions outside of our control as well. So um, I think, I think what I, the view I'm kind of sharing, I've been reading a bit of uh, people in the UK as well. And you're more likely to see a period of inflation going up and down, you know, we're at 7%, 8% inflation. But if you start to move off the, the figures of last year, you're probably going to drop to twos and threes, which is a lot of what, what a lot of people are forecasting. So inflation is going to drop significantly and then it probably increase again because we'll have another, <laughs> another mm. outbreak or another variant come out. So I think you, you're going to have, um, they, they, they called it inflation volatility. So you're going to see, you know, inflation going up and down, not just sitting a bit between one and 3% like it has for the last 20 years. And that has important portfolio implications because it, I think it means you can't just go all in one direction. You can't just go, oh, I'm worried about inflation. I have to invest everything to protect against inflation. I'm worried about deflation. You have to actually either be active or you have to um, consider, you know, hedge for both situations, which is even mm. more difficult. I think this is um, where people get a bit frightened by the, the decision-making process because there are almost competing views here, like even within themselves. Like you say that if inflation rolls off again in the next 12 months do i protect now because i'm experiencing this volatility now i'm, I'm worried right now but if you're saying hold on um things might you know smooth and then come back like it's a pretty hard spot for people to be in because it's not clear cut if inflation is structurally rising um or if it is not but i think you know there are some things we can do in our portfolios generally speaking like you said sometimes it's just good to, to clear things out if things yeah. are you know, unprofitable companies aren't executing financially stricken. They've got leverage on their balance sheet. These are, these are good opportunities to do that in any case. It doesn't matter what the market cycle is. If you're a long-term investor, you should be doing those things anyway. So I think that's, that's interesting. But one of the things before we get to kind of those types of discussions, one thing I want to know from you um, with what you and Jamie are doing at Waddle Partners is how the portfolios change from 2021 versus 2022 in particular, if we can just get kind of get like the 30,000 foot view of the asset classes, because we talk a lot about stocks, yeah. um, but this, as we know, a lot of problems start outside of stocks. They start in bond markets and credit and these types of things before they flow across. And we're seeing that uncertainty wobble across into equity markets. So maybe we can take it like one asset class at a time and how you've, you've changed things. Yeah, perfect. I think the good starting point there is a lot of the clients we work with are retirees and there's important differentiating thing there because retirees mm. generally don't have the ability to earn more money their their retirement capital is is what they have and if you know if they're spending it they can't add more it's all about the return so at all points you have to be prepared for multiple situations you can't be as yourself or i long equities all the time because <laughs> <laughs> compounding doesn't always work or doesn't work when you're pulling money out um 
of, of your portfolio and you're reducing your equity exposure. So I think one of the big things we do there, and it's just as relevant for people that are starting out, which is only put as much money into markets, whether that's equities, crypto, anything else, as you're willing to risk or you're willing, say you're willing to lose, really you're not going to lose it all. But, you know, if you've got a house deposit coming up in, in six months and you think you can make 20% of the market, don't do it. If, yeah, it's it's very simple there. Yeah. Um, and then for for clients uh, that we work with, we the first thing we start with is you know how much cash and low risk investments do you need to be comfortable? If we put four hundred thousand dollars and you know you can always draw on it, and that gives you five years at eighty thousand dollars a year tax free, and you don't have to think about it, well then you're a lot more comfortable with the day to day volatility on the other side of your portfolio. Right. So that's high level, probably even higher than 40,000 foot view, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Slightly higher, but um, I can, yeah. We, do you want to start at the the boring stuff and fixed income or do you want to start at yeah, the- Yeah, I, I think that's important because these are building blocks, right? So a lot of people just go straight to equities and particularly accumulators do, like I do this. I invest majority, yeah. by far, majority of my wealth in equities, but I'm perfectly comfortable doing that, but it's not appropriate for everyone. So let's yep. start at what is appropriate for most people and that is kind of fixed interest. I'd say first cash. I, we're generally holding a bit more cash than we were last year. Um, yeah, doesn't right. mean we're selling out, but after a strong year, naturally building up cash from distributions, dividends, buybacks. So we're holding elevated, a little bit of elevated cash because if you, if vol- regardless of whether I'm right or wrong on inflation, it's clear that volatility is going to be higher. There's yeah. going to be opportunities and there's going to be times to deploy capital, which is how we did so well in 2020. Um, fixed interest. So there's this common... Uh, the biggest risk in fixed interest is it's called duration or you know interest rate risk, which is, uh, for instance, if you buy the government bond index, which is the, the probably the biggest ETF or the biggest index you can buy in fixed interest, you have duration risk that equates to they call it eight years or eight percent. So what that means is either the the kind of average maturity of those loans uh, is in some cases it's out to ten or fifteen years, but if interest rates that everyone's talking about, or even bond, the prevailing bond rate increases by 1%, and you've got a duration of eight, which is what the index says, then that value of those bonds can fall by about 8% if interest mm. rates go up by 1%. So that you could lose almost 10% of your low risk fixed income component if you're taking on duration risk. Was that a good enough key, explanation or is that a yeah, bit- and the key, <laughs> I guess the key, the key is there that's low risk. So 8% yeah. is something that we're familiar with in equities, but for the part of your portfolio that should never fall 8% in a very quick you know, amount of time, you, you, you really want to make sure that you're, you're, what, you're concerned about this risk and you're aware of it because it is something that we see. We see it in the big ETFs. Um, for, when, for our ETF uh, subscription service, we rolled out of one of the ETFs about 18 months ago and said, you're probably better off just putting your money in a term deposit here um, yeah. This is when we were getting those bonus interest rates from the banks and all that <laughs> stuff, because you, you could get 1% with no duration risk, meaning that if you had your money in a term deposit for 12 months, the value of that term deposit does not change. But if you have the same amount in the bond ETF, it could change and it could change drastically, yet the, the return or the interest that you receive in your pocket is probably the same. So you te- you, you've got to be aware of that risk at any one time. And I think it's worth noting there, just you started with cash. Yeah. Uh, the last time you were on the show with Jamie, we talked about how the the true value of cash is not necessarily the interest that you receive. It's also the ability to deploy that capital at better prices. And yeah. that's something you can't price in. And then obviously you've got the behavioral advantage there too, in terms of, okay, I've got cash, I feel comfortable. So 
let's let's maybe shift now a bit um, to equities. So the other side of this component, how how are you seeing things? We've seen tech being the tech sector in, in equities being slammed. How are you seeing that? That's pretty scary when you look out there. Um, yeah. you know, we've we've always been in the last few years anyway, as volatility has picked up, we've always tilted towards being more active. So employing active managers occasionally with a you know a cheap core like an S and P five hundred core, mm-hmm. but. I think you just you sh- this environment showing that there is some value and opportunity in being more active within markets, particularly when the indexes are being dominated by uh, a few companies. I think there was always similar to the crypto market. I kind of compare crypto and non-profitable tech. There was clearly you didn't have to be you know a genius to to know that there was a lot of momentum and a lot of froth moving into you know there's there were companies that were listing multi-billion dollar valuations that still hadn't barely earned a dollar of of revenue Mm. Um, and you can sell hope for a period of time but eventually your earnings start to catch up so um, I think naturally we've drifted away from tech but part of that has been an active decision so adding a bit more value exposure which is you know trying to find undervalued companies rather than ones that are growing you know 20 30 percent a year and part of that's within the managers we employ themselves where <clears throat> they've tilted the portfolios where they had you know the amazons and the apples six or nine months ago they've shifted into the value into you know less expensive sectors because they kind of shared some of our views um which was that you know earnings uh, one example someone gave was that apple's uh outlook for growth in 2019 was about eight or nine percent per annum 2021 it's 30% per annum mm. and yeah a lot's changed but I'm, uh, their, their, their question was how many more iPads and how many more yeah well, there's a watch and earpods and you're not mm. going to buy as many as you bought over the last two years in the next two to three and if even if that's 10% lower well the price of Apple is going to be 10 or 15% lower on that basis um, and I think you're just starting to see that you know extrapolating is another example extrapolating mm. we markets have a and structure of markets is such that as stocks go up we all want to be involved in them so they tend to when things are going great it looks like it's extrapolated out to the future even if we're not going to be home riding bikes <laughs> every day anymore um i think it's just natural uh, and i think you're going to get plenty of buying opportunities you just want to be in you know quality quality everyone says quality all the time but that's you know reasonably well managed companies that are already got strong markets and are growing at a reasonable rate. So you don't have to find companies growing 50%, you know, eight, 10 to 12% is going to be great in the next few years. And I think, yeah. So one thing we don't say is bad things about Apple on the show, Drew. You should know that. <laughs> I mean, I've got everything. So that's right. <laughs> uh, no, but, uh, so yeah. So it's seriously like, so if you think of the way I think about this and the way I'd encourage everyone else to think about this is if you have, like a spectrum of asset classes, you start with least risky on one side and most risky on the other. Typically what happens if you think of them as buckets, the least risky, best returning assets typically fill up and then they spill over into the next one, spill over into the next one, spill over to the next one. And what happens is as interest rates fall, people move further across because things, the good asset classes that that are safer are getting filled up quicker. But as soon as that starts to rise or people think that, money is pulled away from those riskier asset classes and put back into the other ones. And what we're seeing now is that reduction, the valuation premium coming back from those nosebleed areas. Um, admittedly, like some of the forecasts that I was doing as an analyst were pretty, pretty bullish. And you can see that now. Um, but at the same time, I think you're right. Like 
it's always been a case that we want quality and we want value. But what we're seeing now is probably more people getting better value because we're getting better prices and you don't need to target 50% growth to make up the market beating return that you so badly want. Um, so, so what what we did during 2020 is we had a list of about five stocks that we'd always wanted to buy and, you know, could never justify it. And then 2020 came March, April. It wasn't easy, but we got basically bought five of those stocks that we'd always thought were part of a portfolio that were too expensive. So that's what, if you, if, if we do get a 10, 20, 30% drawdown, which happens in markets, you know, it happens every five, 10 years. Um, you, you just have a shopping list um, and make sure you're not, you know, fully exposed on, on the downside for the rest of it. Yeah. There's, um, there's this, uh, what I asked our analysts to do the other day was actually just create a list of the best companies that they could possibly think of. So don't worry about valuation, just create a list of the best companies. Then you talk about valuation. And if you have the ASX, there might only be 30 companies in total that you think are, you know, world-class, really high quality. Um, and these are the times when you want them on your list because you may get the opportunity to buy them at a respectable valuation. Whereas more, more often than not, you don't get that. Um, Speaking of, you've you've talked about you know diversifying across asset classes, across factors as we call it, you know, from growth to value to quality, all that sort of stuff. Um, how can investors think about spreading the equity kind of risk versus reward in the portfolio, or how are you doing it for clients? I think natural. I mean, the first thing we look at when we're building, say, a global exposure, we, our view generally is Australia overvalues tech you've probably seen it doing analytical work because there's not much growth in the rest of the market we have value yeah. tech so and our client base such that we focus on finding cheaper companies or value in australia we stick to the kind of asx 100 for that and then we look for growth overseas um but we look at it yeah old not old-fashioned but trying to understand there are key factors that have driven performance and have been proven to drive performance like earnings momentum, which has been one of the most important ones over the last 10 years, where companies that are increasing their earnings regularly, share prices perform better. So you want more companies that are increasing earnings. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the risk of the value approach, which is you're generally finding companies that are earnings are falling and that's why they're cheap. Yeah. Uh, so we, we just look at how exposed we are to those factors, value, size. So that's your market cap the income that they're paying because obviously if you're buying more if you've got more exposure to companies that are paying big dividends well if the term deposit rate goes up people aren't going to want those dividends as much if term deposits are, are yielding mm. better um so the first thing we look at is where we're exposed to there and we've been heavily exposed to earnings and um and momentum over the last few years and that really if you're exposed to tech you're exposed to earnings so where are you where are you weighted and what's your outlook for those um, we're not we don't think traditional value I think traditional value investing is dead you know finding the old Benjamin Graham yeah. scar butt uh, yeah. you're not going to find that very often but it doesn't mean you can't find companies that aren't trading at excessive valuations all over the place uh, I think we'll talk about one later maybe yeah <laughs> that and could be the, a cigar butt but <laughs> yeah and it, and the, this is the thing right we've got so much capital in the system that I think that and price discovery is a is is much more efficient these days so we have you know everyone has access to the best data and this these days these tools are no longer for the kind of Illuminati that you know can get access to CEOs and whatever and so that price discovery means that cigar butt investing has had to evolve yeah. into a more modern form of value investing. And um, yeah, I, I agree with you in that respect. They're very hard to find. You might find them in like 
the most severe market dislocations imaginable, but we're not in that right now. So if that's your, if you're, if you're thinking I'm going to buy something that's net cash and, you know, more greater value of cash than that, you know, the rest of the business, the market cap, I mean, you're going to be waiting probably forever to find that type of thing. And even if you do, then you might not see it in time. So I agree, you know, we are naturally value. all value investors too. It's it just human yeah. bias. I think. Yeah. I think a lot of us don't want to be value investors. We might say we want to be, but we don't want to be um, in certain market environments because it's, it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to invest that way for a long period of time. Um, how about in terms of like sectors or regions for, for viewers or listeners, are there, are there areas of or geographies that you're, you're taking interest in? Yeah, so we were a bit, we tend to be a bit early in what we do, mm. which is sometimes it works, sometimes mm. it doesn't. Um, we, late last year, we started going overweight Asia, emerging markets and, and Asia specifically, particularly China. You know, China's underperformed every other market. I think the main index down 30% where everything else is up last year. Um, but you've just seen their, their central bank, their government, you know, reinstating a lot of the stimulus that Australia, the US and every other country is kind of cancelling. So you, you've got one, they're, they're cheaper than everywhere else on every traditional multiple. Two, they're still growing. You're still buying quality companies. You're just buying them 40% cheaper than they were last year. And I think if you're buying them cheap enough, you, you're kind of offsetting or you're pricing in some of the regulatory risks that everyone is talking about um, in those regions. Plus, you're not allocating 30% of your portfolio to one country this is how it. do you get that exposure do you um is it active management that you use there or yeah so first thing we'll look at a an etf or a passive and see if we can get a reasonable exposure from that unfortunately emerging markets is just dominated by about four companies um i won't badmouth any companies but you know <laughs> if you're buying a an index and you get 35 percent in four companies well you're not really that diversified um mm -hmm. so we for that EM, we've gone uh, active. And part of that is you want people with experience and kind of understanding of, of the trends and what's going on on the ground um, to be able to find governance structures yeah, and all that. Yeah, invest companies in different yeah. sectors. So you're not just, you, and you want companies that are operating, selling to Chinese or Asian consumers. You don't want multi billion dollar technology companies because they're exposed to the same risks as the ones in the US. So you want the, you know, the apparel producers or the, you know, gadget or widgets. Yeah. Everyone says widgets. That's just the, <laughs> the bailout comment. So yeah, overweight Asia, I think Europe is kind of looking more attractive and more diversified as well. Um, you know, it's got pretty good monetary and, and government support over there. Um, I think, it, and smaller companies is probably our other, uh, probably our other tactical weighting at the moment. So smaller companies overseas are two to five billion market cap so that mm -hmm. compares to like cube on the asx which is by no means small you know they own ports in every part of the country so i think because that market is so big you know tens of thousands of companies there's more opportunity for active management but there's also opportunity to get more diversification of sectors more diversification of countries and that's what you're looking for you know, uh, you want to be exposed to the Norwegian economy if you think the US economy is weak or you want to be exposed to the European or that's that's really the diversification you're looking for. How about, um, like, if we just think about people getting really worried right now, in terms of portfolio construction, this is what you do, right? How can people think about 
resetting their portfolio to if they're worried about drawdowns, for example, yep. you know, this is what people are really concerned about. How can we think about that? Like what advice would you give to clients and, and, and doing their portfolios? I was, I was talking to a client through it last week and the, the first thing I said, well, apart from the things we said before, which is hold some cash and have enough, you know, in mm. forget about money that, you know, you've always got enough. Uh, and it was really about look at your portfolio and what's core, cool, what's, what's not, you know, we all buy random things on a, <laughs> when we read something good. So, you know, is there a core part of your portfolio that you just wouldn't touch and then assess that, understand that, make sure that's allocated appropriately and then know the rest of it's tactical. So if, if you're worried, then you sell the tactical stuff and you keep your core. Cause we know, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes negative towards influences, but they, they get the idea of compound um, returns. Mm. But if you're pulling your core out of the market all the time, you're going in and out of the S&P or the ASX, well, you're never going to get the benefit of compounding. So to have as much of your core exposed that you're comfortable with and then adjusting in and out with your tactical or your them thematic things that are, are likely going to be more short term. Um, and that comes back to, what was it? I looked at a chart before that said, you know, everyone talks about avoiding the, you know, um, missing the best 10 days on the, on the, on the market and your returns significantly lower. Yeah. If you miss the worst 10 days on the market, your returns about 10 times higher <laughs> as well. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, the idea that, you can't market time. I think you you probably will need to a little bit. Not saying sell everything out of equities into cash all the time, but having that tactical exposure and having some cash and deploying that, you can mm. leverage significant returns in short periods of time. Yeah. So one of the things that we we sat down as an investing team at Rask the other day, and um, for our membership service Rask Invest, we looked at all the companies and we basically went through the list and said which of these companies should we uh, would be the first to sell right now? And it's not necessarily because we want to sell them right now. It's because if we can do that and encourage our members to then reallocate into new names that are now cheaper, we should do that now. Um, we should start thinking about that because um, maybe those com companies are more vulnerable. And if they are more vulnerable, maybe they don't rebound as quickly. Um, and so I, I, I agree, like, the core of the portfolio, if you have a passive core, as in, you know, your standard ETFs or managed funds, that's the stuff that you, it's sticky. You can't really afford to take that out. I've heard horror stories of um, people going, you know, 50% cash in a drawdown and then not redeploying because they just don't have the kind of emotional wherewithal to deal with that. Um, so I, I agree. And that's where I think people should understand what part of their portfolio does what for them. And some people do this as simply as if they're not advised, like as in, if they don't see a financial advisor like yourself, they might have two different brokerage accounts. One is the thing that they very rarely open because they know it's just dollar cost averaging into whatever. And the other one is that we, we don't really want to call it fun money, but it might be more tactical money where they can be a bit more expressive in, in, in shorter term positions. Um, one of the things that we talked about with Jamie on the show and, and you and I've talked about it over time as well is basically the, the buckets in the portfolio. So yeah. I think this is a really interesting thing is I've been getting asked a lot lately about, Oh, well, what about, you know, fixed income and what can I do? Should I use REITs? Should I use, where can I get my interest exposure? Because we've, you're talking about saying that interest rate risk is a real thing for traditional bond portfolios well, what can I do with that money? Do I just put 
all of that, you know, if they say if they're 60, 40, 60% stocks, 40% bonds or, or lower risk, is that all of a sudden now just term deposits and cash? Or, you know, what can I do with that to get, you know, some type of return over the next three to five years? And you've got this um, defensive alts bucket or defensive alternatives bucket, which kind of sits between that, as my understanding of it, is that true defensive, you know, fixed income type exposure and the more growthy type aspects of a portfolio. It sits in between and it can be kind of, it can be leveraged in, in moments like this. So maybe you can tell us what's inside that and what purpose that's serving for you now. Yeah, definitely. I think part of that is answering the end of your last question as well, which is how do you prepare yourself for, for drawdowns? And it's holding alternative assets. <clears throat> you know, mm. equities and bonds, they're market driven. They're always going to be market driven. What the market does, they're, you know, they're going to be volatile. So how do you find less correlated uh, income streams, less correlated assets. We we separate them into defensive and growth alternatives. We don't have to talk about the growth side, but defensively, basically, you're looking for things that have historically not shown the drawdown that you're worried about. So, you can probably deal with a five percent drawdown in a defensive alternative bucket. If that makes mm. sense. So, a five percent top to bottom fall, which happens. You know, corporate bonds fell point you know three percent in October last year. And that's a fairly low, low asset class. But within the defensive alternatives bucket, we're looking at similar way that a pension fund would look at it, which is you know, less, they call it less traditional fixed income. So most fixed income is, in, is lending money to governments and state governments and government institutions. Credit, you're just lending money to companies. So you can buy the Woolworths bond, you could buy the Woolworths sustainability bond. You can, mm. you know, you can buy, you know, basically you're funding their asset or you, you're lending money to a toll road to build a toll road. Um, so that's one part of there. And within that sector, you've actually got more flexibility around fixed versus floating rate bonds. There's a lot more floating rate bonds, which naturally, if, you, if your interest rate is floating and interest rates go up, you get paid more interest. So your capital value should be less volatile. Um, and we also put in there more exotic government bond <laughs> strategies. So you were an analyst a long time ago. Um, buying government bonds, you've got duration. You can remove that duration risk by, you know, using derivatives and yep. basically hedging out. So you, you're then betting on the movement between two different bonds, not necessarily the movement of that individual bond. So that's something because it involves derivatives, we pull it out of fixed income and put it into defensive alts. Gold bullion, um, which is one of the things very hard as an advisor to hold gold, which we've done for about seven years now, just because it doesn't provide an income. But it is, people think it's a hedge of inflation, but it's more of a hedge against volatility. Uh, so that falls into our defensive alternative. How much, how much would be saying, if you had a balance, just like a balanced portfolio, how much of the allocation would be gold? Five to 10 for Five us at 10. the moment. Okay. Yeah. And that, but that's with the view of, you know, these are clients that can't afford to lose a significant amount of money. So how much is worth hedging in that, in that portfolio, it's similar. It's similar to cash, more volatile than cash, but it's like an extra currency if you if you kind of think about it that way. How do you get exposure um, to that gold? We've a few different ways. We bought directly at the Perth Mint before. You can you can buy if you're trading over fifty grand. It's probably cost effective, or you can buy a few different ETFs. Um, you can yep. buy currency hedged. So if, I know they report on the news the US dollar price of gold, but as an Australian investor, you can actually buy the Aussie dollar price of gold, which has performed much better. Than the US over the last few years. Um, there's mm. an ETF for everything. So <laughs> hedged, unhedged, uh, synthetic, real. Um, and then we've got 
what a term kind of multi-asset. So that's multiple asset class strategies where someone will basically pull the strings between European government bonds and uh, US small cap equities. And they'll basically plot where they think the best returns are going to come from and actively manage those allocations. Um, How do you, I mean, an absolute so, return. so actually, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll save the, you can save the answer to this question for an, you and I were sitting down today. We're actually recording three episodes in one go. And one of the episodes we're going to be recording next is how do you analyze a fund manager? I think the multi-asset class discussion is probably the hardest one to have in terms of when you look at an equity um, investor, how do you analyze them versus how do you analyze someone that does multi-asset? But so multi-asset funds, when you have client money and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to have some multi-asset managers in here, they're sitting in this defensive alts bucket typically. Yeah. Some, that, yeah, depending on their approach. So most of them have a volatility target, which is, yeah. you know, higher vol, higher potential loss. Uh, so if they're lower vol, they'll go into defensive. If they're higher, they'll go into growth. Yeah, okay. Because I think that's a, it's not something that most retail investors at least have exposure to because it's a, it, it can seem unwieldy to try and understand what they're doing and make an informed decision on that. So that'll be one we want for next time. But it's almost, to, I mean, we'd say it's almost a psychological tool, mm -hmm. you know, you there's no point um if a crash comes and you're selling equities that have fallen 40 percent to buy other equities that are falling 40 percent there's just there's no point you may as well hold the same equities yeah. so for us it's about finding those investments that have historically i won't go too much detail that haven't fallen with the market and can therefore be flipped into the market at the bottom how you make that decision is another difficult discussion but that whole defensive alternatives bucket is things that won't fall so you can buy equities uh, when they're cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really, um, I think it's a really interesting thing for our listeners to think about is what in your portfolio wouldn't fall as much as the equity market um, and what is not exposed to duration. So what is not exposed to the sensitivities of interest rates directly? Drew's just said, you know, things like small cap tech, even things like crypto, we've seen a super sensitive to interest rate changes for different reasons to bonds. Um, but it's basically what are we trying to find in our portfolio that can fit in between all that? Um, one final thing I might just ask, one final question here, mate, before we wrap it up and, and move on, which is that is there like a, is there anything that you can say for investors that are worried about inflation right now? How can they get protection? Yeah, so I think I said at the start, don't put all your eggs in one basket because the risk is that inflation's here, then it's gone, then it's back again. And if you're wrong on inflation, you can lose pretty badly too. <laughs> this, is the, this is the thing. So we've got a few things. We've used gold and silver successfully in the past. You can buy inflation-linked bonds, uh, which are getting... The, the only real ones you can get in Australia are government. So basically, the value of the bond on which the interest rate is calculated, that value increases with CPI every quarter. So you, the value of your investment keeps up um, and your interest rate goes up too. Floating rates so preference shares, um, are one of the biggest in corporate bonds, the biggest floating rate. There's a few ETFs that do short duration and floating rate, rate uh, bonds, cheaper companies. Um, it's not as simple as what the market says, which is buy financials and energy. Um, you can find pretty good companies at the moment, I think anyway, uh, that are cheaper, but still still mm. good. And you're kind of surprised that they're so cheap. Mm. Um, and then, you know, there's the same themes are still going to occur over the next five or 10 years, and they're still going to be as powerful as they were before. So 
make sure you you're exposed not just necessarily the inflation theme but look look beyond that is it you know renewable energy evs are these things still going to exist yeah they're not going to change are you can you buy them cheaper in the next few years probably so know your key themes and and um they're as good a hedge as anything you probably see some volatility with the market but mm. if, if they're yeah. going to grow quicker then that's where you want to be yeah i i like it and in particular the the option of getting lower duration so just so you know if you're, if you're new to this conversation you can if you find the etf that you're looking for like it's like a hybrid or a preference shares whatever type of bond fund manager or even um you know in, just income focused funds go into their monthly fund report and they should have duration listed in there or you can go into like the portfolio analytics tab and it should have duration and so what we're looking for this is not the only thing of course but what we're looking for is a low duration number so if it says seven that's not low um low would be one to two um so um that's what we're traditionally looking for and basically what happens is once inflation and once in or interest rates reach a certain point so let's say they're going up and they've reached a point where it's plateaued then you can look at duration but in the meantime um if your view is that interest rates are going to rise you do not want a high duration reading so um mate this is this is heaps of fun um i know people always reach out to you after these conversations so if they want to do that i'm guessing the best place is to go to waddlepartners.com.au or email you directly yeah perfect i'm not active on my twitter account yet so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's probably more appropriate if, if you do want to reach out to drew um you'll find all the links in the show notes if you look down in your podcast player or head to the rask website you'll find uh, his email he's very brave in putting his email out there i've got to admit um and uh but if you do want to get in contact with him you can and um drew meredith uh, cfp from water partners mate thanks for joining me thanks again